on this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. At the center of our known universe is a star. Look across the slick blackness of rural sky and see their shapes above, the gods they once symbolized, the celestial bodies that once acted to guide us where we needed to go. How appropriately our new stars are named, when at any given time they can take their place too at the center of our universe. When Kristen Stewart cheated on Robert Pattinson, when she cheated on eternal love itself, she shattered the illusion of Twilight's romance with married director Rupert Sanders. They were photographed by the paparazzi, kissing beside what looks like an orchard, pushed up against a white fence, the ground just parking lot dust at their feet. Kristen Stewart had to make an apology to the nation, as if she owed us an explanation for shattering the fantastical world of passion we all want and are so rarely afforded. Quote, I'm deeply sorry for the hurt and embarrassment I've caused to those close to me and everyone this has affected. This momentary indiscretion has jeopardized the most important thing in my life, the person I love and respect the most, Rob. I love him. I love him. I'm so sorry. This issue had nothing at all to do with us, and yet America took it personally. What these celebrities did, who they were, and how they acted all seem to have some kind of impact on our sense of self. Whether we like to admit it or not, we all have the celebrities we follow, and we can watch their dramatics, their dramatics, which are our dramatics, play out on a public stage. But fame, as we know it, evolved along with cultural changes that began at the turn of the century and would shift our focus from what a person does to who a person is. Since the advent of the movies reflected our own humanity back to us, we've made modern gods of our celebrities, at first worshipping at the altar of fame, believing that we too could be lifted to their level if only we played our cards right. But after the rise of celebrity gossip, we turned on our heroes, instead delighting in their misfortunes and moral failings. But it wasn't just our cultural changes that formed our celebrity obsession. It's also a deeply embedded process within our evolution, inside our human DNA, simply reimagined and writ large in the sparkling cities of Los Angeles and New York. On this episode, we'll trace the major events that shaped our specific kind of American fame, forming our fantastical ideas about celebrities and their personas on and off screen. As social media mirrors each of our personalities back to us, we can each experience a taste of fame. And all over the country, major and minor celebrities are rising to prominence as social media influencers who are indeed influencing our culture every day, including through the uncensored Twitter page of our newest celebrity president, hot off the high of starring in cheap reality TV. What if I told you that there was a time before personality? Does that feel like an inconceivable notion? It does to me. 
I spend so much time thinking about my personality, about who I am, about what makes up Chelsea Weber Smith, whether it be the podcaster or the artist or the queer person or the emotional human or the general funny guy. I think a lot about understanding myself. This isn't unique to me. This is a cultural touchstone. Something completely taken for granted is just what we all do. We try to self-actualize. We go to therapy to understand our impulses and emotions. We write in journals about our own feelings and life events. We wear clothes and buy objects that express our individuality. But this has not been the case for very long. The entire concept would have been outrageous and likely satanic to the Puritans that first created this America. All the way up until really the movies, people were revered for their character, for their skills, for their righteousness, discipline, personal sacrifice. You didn't really want to stand out. You wanted to keep your head down and do your work, unless you were someone who was called to what used to be known as greatness. By the American Revolution, those who were well-known were military generals, politicians, and religious leaders. They were the people who led who set an example of an ideal way of being in the young, developing nation. This carried through the Industrial Revolution, as consumer capitalism changed who our celebrities were, and the achievement of wealth status became the most desirable attainment. This made celebrities of Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller, and J.P. Morgan the titans of industry. These men were seen as examples of genius, the people leading the way toward a bright and rich American future. This switch in our social values system happened rapidly. An apt example shows in 1899, an author named Sweat Marden publishing a book called Character, the Greatest Thing in the World. In 1921, he instead published a book called Masterful Personality. Historians attribute this change to the rise of American consumerism and the movement away from production. Character produced goods while personality sold them. In the 1800s, a kid might aspire to be a farmer, a merchant, or a soldier, or at the most fantastical, an explorer or cowboy. But such humble hopes are not the case now. As America moved from an agricultural nation to an urban one, by the 1920s, 50% of citizens lived in cities. This also meant that for those with a steady job, the income provided a completely new concept, leisure time. Leisure time that needed to be filled with entertainment lest we spend a single moment contemplating the crushing weight of our unknowable existence. The movies appeared to us as a great mirror, a way in which to see ourselves in the perfection we wished for, the perfection that would help us attain the power of the elite. We can see ourselves in the stories of love and tragedy, of valiance and death, and we don't have to do anything but sit there, eat candy, and bear witness. On the stage, emotion was shown through the body. In film, emotion was seen in the face, and that is why we became obsessed. Humans look at faces for social cues, and we really can't tell the difference between real and virtual images. And so, those faces become faces we know. In 1905, there were about 2,500 theaters showing moving pictures. By 1909, there were 9,000. By 1930, the number was closer to 72,000 theaters nationwide. At the start of the moving pictures, it wasn't a desirable gig for stage actors. In fact, it was kind of a tacky thing to do. The first movie star as we know them today started out on the vaudeville circuit, known as Baby Flo, the child wonder whistler, who made her debut at three years old with song, dance, and of course, whistling. 
Eventually, baby Flo adopted the fantastic stage name of Florence Lawrence, and her first big film break came in 1906, when Thomas Edison's production company called Biograph Studios cast Florence to play Daniel Boone's daughter in a movie about the frontier. Known as the Biograph Girl, she would go on to do 36 films in three years, and her fame and mystique grew enormous. At that time, actors were not billed for their work in movies. Nobody ever knew their names, partially because their participation was seen as low-brow and partially because the studios knew that they could pay them less if their names did not appear. Fans wrote into the studio daily, frantic to know the identity of the beautiful anonymous woman who was making them feel so many things with just her facial expressions. But as her relationship soured with Biograph Studios, a film producer named Carl Lemley had an idea of how to capitalize on the hunger for Florence Lawrence, and she moved over to the moving pictures company. And then Carl Lemley, in one of the earliest examples of PR, produced an alternative celebrity reality. He planted a story in the news in 1910 that claimed that the Biograph girl had been struck by a streetcar and killed instantly. He then planted a different story in another paper debunking the death of the Biograph Girl with the title, We Nail a Lie. Lemley blamed Edison's rival studio for the original story and announced that the Biograph Girl would now be making films with him. But even more importantly, the story announced something never before announced, the name of a movie star, the name of THE movie star. The life of Florence Lawrence was forever altered in that moment. The moment her name flicked across the papers and then later flicked across the screen. Almost immediately after the article dropped, Lemley scheduled an appearance by Florence, including an interview, the very first curated celebrity meet and greet. Pictures were sold and fans were encouraged to get an autograph from Lawrence. At the event, hundreds surrounded the star as she tried to leave the area, and her car was mobbed and she was unable to move. Her hat was stolen from her head, and the very buttons were ripped from her coat. Like so many performers who would come after her, she would go on to commit suicide, specifically by ingesting ant poison and cough syrup at 1 a.m. During this time, journalists were still sticking to making the stars seem happier, more stable, and more successful than they actually were. People wanted to see happy marriages smiling out of the pages. They wanted to see beautiful children and lavish vacations and homes. People wanted a dazzling and perfect life to look toward. And the life of fame meant that any person with enough talent, good looks, and charm could rise to the level of the elite. Just like how a working-class kid from Baltimore made it into the major leagues, shattering baseball records that still last to this day. Zachary gets ready. The Babe has done it. 60 home runs in one season. One of the greatest records in baseball. Ruth was America's first sports celebrity in that he was known not only for his record home runs and pitching, but also for his movie acting, vaudeville performances, his newspaper column, and even for barnstorming, in which he traveled giving exhibits of stunt flying and parachuting. After his record-breaking season in 1927, in which the Yankees swept the Pirates in a four-win World Series, he went on a nationwide tour of small-town America from coast to coast with fellow Yankee Lou Gehrig. 
As part of their PR, they played against local teams to huge crowds. But many of the games were cut short when kids rushed the field to touch Ruth's jersey. Not only that, but Ruth also charmingly participated in several local publicity events, like posing with a record-breaking chicken who was known as the Babe Ruth of egg-laying, and also posing with children at local orphanages. To keep everyone hooked on the Babe, his publicist and manager Christy Walsh steered the course of his public image, successfully keeping his two-year separation from his wife a secret by staging photographs that showed her and their daughters cheering from the Yankee stands. To get to meet Babe Ruth, to get to have a baseball signed by him, or to simply spot him at a train station became extremely important events in the lives of everyday people. He was a beloved god of baseball, of America, but he was also one of the very first to be taken down from on high. He became a representative of a kind of super masculinity and charisma, eating hot dogs by the dozen and drinking beer like a normal guy. Stars, they're just like us. Very little was known about Ruth's actual personal life, and all the details were exaggerated to maximize Ruth's hard background that made dreamers out of small-town America, imagining that they themselves, too, could have the magical life of a famous baseball player. Radio broadcasts were still rare at this point, but Babe Ruth's mythological legacy preceded him, and he's considered one of the first mass-marketed celebrities as we know them. Shifting celebrities from a perfect ideal to something more human at first worked in the favor of the famous and added to their adoration through a more personal connection. Stars, they're just like us. But going on at the same time was a famous fall from grace so extreme that it would spark celebrity gossip for decades to come and stay with us right up through the modern era. Stars, they're just like us, only worse. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. 
And now, back to the show. Arguably the first modern celebrity scandal, the alleged sexual assault and eventual death of Virginia Rapp on Labor Day of 1921 would mark forever the slow fall from grace of the celebrity ideal. The man who was charged with her death was beloved comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, a kind of early John Belushi or Chris Farley. He was second only to Charlie Chaplin in Hollywood, and from 1914 to 1920, he was considered one of the greats. He received a year's salary of what would now be almost $25 million. He was beloved by kids all over the country as a kind of wholesome entertainment in a world that seemed to be going wild. That is, until the fateful evening when Arbuckle hosted a party full of drugs and booze at the top of a San Francisco hotel. The next day, Virginia Rapp was taken to the hospital, where she claimed that she had been raped by Arbuckle in a room of the party, and then died soon after in that very hospital bed. In reports that shocked Hollywood and the country at large, Fatty Arbuckle was charged with manslaughter. The scandal was a familiar mess of he said, she said, and the subsequent tearing down of both reputations. Arbuckle easily became the face of Hollywood's seedy underbelly, and the media reported that he was addicted to morphine, had cheated on his wife multiple times, and that he often threw the kind of sin-soaked orgy parties that had left a woman dead. Studios wouldn't hire him, theaters wouldn't play his films. Arbuckle was, effectively, cancelled, perhaps the earliest example of our cancel culture. But on the other side, too, of course, to much of the public, Rap became a liar, a con artist, an alcoholic sex worker with any number of STDs. There was an implication that she brought the assault on herself for drinking illegal alcohol, for being a woman with such loose morals. Soon, politicians and the media chimed in, with Montana Senator Henry Myers railing against Hollywood's, quote, debauchery, riotous living, and drunkenness, and the Baltimore Sun calling the night in question one of the, quote, orgies of the film colony. Partially because there was a lack of evidence in Rapp's case, after three different trials, Fatty Arbuckle was acquitted with hung juries unable to reach verdicts. Evidently, Rapp's cause of death was a ruptured bladder, and stories abounded about just how Arbuckle had caused her death in a number of terribly lurid ways. I can't say myself whether Arbuckle was guilty of sexual assault and manslaughter or not, but nonetheless, the scandal represented a change in the way Americans interacted with their celebrities. Suddenly, it was all about schadenfreude, or the joy at witnessing the misfortune of others. A hunger grew for this kind of story, for this tale of drugs, sex, and murder, of trouble in the overproduced fantasy of fame. It seemed that there was a movie playing behind the movie, one that starred the celebrities themselves, and it was far more interesting because it was real, or at least it seemed more real than the movies. Ruin, the finest watch you can give, brings you the man who gives America the news, Walter Winchell of the New York Daily Mirror and the Washington Post. Mr. and Mrs. North of South American, all ships at sea, let's go to press. New York, Sonia Haney, this Atlantic Hill Hospital, New York, for plastic surgery. I'm betting that you've never heard his name before. And yet, Walter Winchell has been called one of the principal architects of American culture, the man who popularized celebrity gossip as we know it. Winchell could make and break careers with his praise and lurid stories, some of which weren't completely true. And if you found yourself on his drop-dead list, your career was virtually over. He was known for famous opening lines like, Good morning, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. 
As part of his fast-talking celebrity gossip rambling, Winchell coined the word, or rather the sound, to describe failed marriages. Winchell was certainly an early fan of fake news, and at its peak, his radio show and newspaper columns were consumed by 50 million people, two-thirds of American adults. He was angry at the conditions of America, angry at the rich and the elite, and he brought those who were suffering the consolation of celebrity shame. Just because they were rich and famous didn't mean that their lives were good or that they were happy or even healthy at all. We felt that we could finally be better than them, that we could judge their sins and have a little more power in a powerless world. In the days of Babe Ruth, when celebrities were still venerated as ideals, Winchell came on the scene to shatter with ultimate pettiness the illusion of perfection of the upper crust. He was famous right up until the 1950s, when the Red Scare got the best of him, and he ranted more and more manically against what he called the scummionists in a very Alex Jones kind of way. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon, and the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. By the late 1950s, the very first televised presidential debate put potential candidates into homes across the nation, an extremely intimate experience that made viewers feel like they were in the same room with these men. With the handsome young John F. Kennedy and a young Richard Nixon, who was fresh out of the hospital after slamming his knee on a car door while on the campaign trail and developing a nasty infection. Not only that, but Nixon had also recently had a bad flu and lost 20 pounds. During the debates, even though Nixon was able to boast his former gig as vice president of the United States and his run in Congress, Kennedy looked healthy and attractive, young and bright, upbeat from resting all day in his hotel room. Kennedy only had a week stint as a U.S. senator for one term, and yet he was said to win the debate over someone with so much experience. You see, Nixon looked sallow. He seemed weak, tired, and sad-sacky, and he complained of his fast-growing stubble that he couldn't keep under control. Interestingly, polls at the time showed that those who watched the debates on TV felt that Kennedy was the winner, and those that listened to it on the radio believed it was Nixon, who would go on to feel slighted by the fact that his appearance wasn't working in his favor and refused to participate in the next two televised debates. Kennedy would go on to win the presidency at the ripe young age of 43, and the glamour of the White House, the fashion of his wife Jackie O, the boyish sexy charm of JFK would be broadcast into every home with a TV. Megastar Marilyn Monroe even famously sang at Kennedy's lavish televised and star-studded birthday event, singing to him high as hell off barbiturates, happy birthday. Jackie O even made the cover of celebrity gossip magazine Photoplay next to Elizabeth Taylor with the title America's Two Queens, a comparison of their days and nights, how they raise their children, how they treat their men. The celebrity status of Kennedy was obviously a good thing in the context of JFK versus Nixon, but it also began a slow mingling of celebrity with politics that could be both entertaining and insidious. We'd go on to have another celebrity president, an actor Ronald Reagan, who famously asked, how can a president not be an actor? Barack Obama would eventually follow as another hip, beautiful young president with a ton of celebrity fans, emblematic of liberal progress. 
Boasting no political experience whatsoever, our current celebrity president has far less experience than JFK before him, formally hosting the reality show The Apprentice, and based solely on his personality, has become the most powerful person in the world. More after this. If you listen to American Hysteria, I think the chances are also pretty high that you like to listen to other true crime podcasts. Well, I've got a new one for you. It's called Case Closed. Each season, it looks at a new murder from crime all the way to the conviction. All of the crimes on Case Closed have already been solved, so you aren't left wondering who really did it or if they'll ever actually get caught. This season follows the story of Rusty Snyderman, a caring Atlanta father who was killed in 2010. Rusty was dropping his son off at preschool one early morning, and as he walked back to his car, a minivan pulled up next to him. Before Rusty could react, the driver shot him four times in the chest. Rusty had no known enemies, so who would want him dead? You'll hear all about Rusty, his loving marriage, and the $2 million life insurance policy in his name. And you'll hear who pulled the trigger. It's an intriguing, suspenseful listen, and you will not be able to turn it off. And you won't have to. You can now binge the entire season of Case Closed wherever you get your podcasts. You will not regret it. That's a Case Closed. And now, back to the show. And then to know that uh, Reverend Al Green was here. I... So in love No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. She's, she's asking a question. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. The famous can inspire both love and hate, as in the case of Donald Trump, just as Barack Obama did before him. Trump is, perhaps, the finest example we have of the shift from a character-focused nation to a personality-based one. He is, in every way, a man of personality, and that is a huge part of the appeal. He embodies the idea of who is at the top of our social pyramid, a business mogul, a famous ladies' man, an America answers to no one kind of guy, someone who says exactly what he thinks when he thinks it and fuck the rest. It's obvious that we've been moving steadily toward a more narcissistic culture, which does sound bad, but it isn't necessarily. We also have the concept of personality to thank for the youth movements that would allow teenagers and young adults to redefine the hierarchy that dominated America, one based only in race, gender, and class. This shift to personality and the popularization of celebrities that weren't just rich white men and women helped swing the pendulum toward progress. But on the other hand, it continues to cause us a dearth of problems, too. But first, let's look at why we're prone to celebrity worship outside of the American context. Are we evolutionarily destined to this phenomenon? Anthropologists say yes. Without that narcissistic impulse, we moved forward with our brains wired as hunter-gatherers, seeking a hierarchy to sustain us, as we did for 99% of human history. 
It's true that we naturally look toward leaders to show us the best ways toward prosperity for the community. In primate species that most closely resemble humans of today, the most dominant of the males are at the top of the social hierarchy, and being associated with that leader means that you are more likely to find a mate or receive extra food and other perks. This was true for early humans, too. But as we evolved, we found that actually the best leaders were those with skills, whether that be hunting or tool creation or home building or spiritual practice or healing. It didn't matter so much if you were brutish and tough. It mattered that you moved the group forward with ingenuity. In our current cultural context, the beauty, wealth, and charisma of celebrities is the most desirable of hierarchical attainment. Just as it was once advantageous to copy the methods of the hunter-gatherer leaders, anthropologists and psychologists believe that our obsession with celebrity clothing trends expresses the same instinct. If we can make ourselves like the stars who are just like us, perhaps we can get to the top as well. In the age of the internet, we are both producers and stars of our own movie, and you can showcase what makes you special, whether that be your singing voice, your face, your comedy, your eye for style, or your personality alone. I could never argue that we aren't more narcissistic now than we used to be, but what if being self-centered, having the self at the center of the universe, means that we can shift the focus of changing others into changing into better versions of ourselves? Today's celebrities are also regular people, well-known for a week or so, as either our heroes or anti-heroes, becoming symbols of current social issues the way that Fatty Arbuckle once was. Our modern era has easily demonstrated Andy Warhol's famous assertion that in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. I've been thinking a lot about fame as I've been writing this episode, and about how, at one time, the famous were those that were considered great, who did great things, not those who were the best-looking or the best at entertaining us. Now anyone can be famous at any time, even a grumpy-faced cat with enough personality to gross millions. In many ways, we've seen the problems with this narcissistic culture, especially as the college admission scandal shines a light on Lori Loughlin and her influencer daughter, who frequently posted videos about how little she cared about college and how much she cared about partying. She currently has, even after the scandal, 1.4 million followers on Instagram who unfortunately, and whether she likes it or not, look to Olivia Jade for some kind of guidance in this chaotic, unknowable world. But the internet, too, has been a great equalizer of sorts and has given us a chance to choose our own heroes again instead of having those heroes thrust upon us. Maybe 15,000 people will follow someone transitioning their gender or speaking out against racial bias, or someone who inspires people toward mental health and self-care, or activists working on social and political change. It can be an exchange of support to idolize someone who can help you become more of who you want to be and even who you already are. Since our brains cannot tell the difference between real and virtual images, we experience sadness right along with our stars and their characters. We experience love and fear. We experience beauty. We laugh and cry. We scream and sigh. Oh, I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but I'm going to keep it in. <laughs> to see our own dilemmas and complications mirrored back to us helps us learn how to move through the world. Celebrity gossip, and gossip in general, is always a reflection of the cultural values being expressed at the time. It represents changes in what is acceptable and the fight against that change. 
you could say that we look toward gossip magazines as almost a manual of how to behave in our social scene. Without the guide, we could make a social mistake, we could cross a line, and we could lose power. And even if we don't think about this consciously, it's happening inside us. Since the birth of the movies, we've been starving for a kind of lost greatness, for meaning, for celebrities to fill the void we have for folk tales and religions, for the blown-up stories of gods and goddesses that guide our human experience. The famous set examples for us to follow, and remembering who you are can be extremely helpful. So when we watch The Mighty Fall, as we are all glued to the screen during any number of celebrity scandals, we're also figuring out our own selves about how we can best act or not act to gain a little more power, a little more control over our own position in the hierarchy. When we fight online, we are defining what the cultural norms of our group will be, and because our nation is so large and our history so divided, we go to social war. We shine a moral light on our gods and goddesses and ask, is this a leader after all? Is this someone worth looking up to? Is this someone worth copying? Is this someone who causes harm and pain? Is this someone who inspires us to try harder, to be better, to advance our giant, diverse, and messy community? We are, after all, a giant community of hunter-gatherers, dreaming of extra food and beautiful mates, staring intently at our social leaders, whose wealth we wonder if we too could one day possess. Celebrities set an example for us to follow, and they help us figure out who we are. This can be extremely helpful, especially in the case of visibility for those groups previously invisible from cultural attention. As we've sought to understand ourselves, so too has America sought to understand itself. As the entertainment industry rose in prominence, so too did social issues like immigration and rights for women and black people. Our personality revolution could be considered one of the main catalysts for this change, for these necessary and important shifts. To me, the risk seems to come when identity becomes less about figuring out how to be the best version of yourself, less about figuring out how to help the community as a whole, and more about appearing to be the best version of yourself and the appearance of helping the community as a whole. If a persona is all we care about, if our identity and this idea of who we are is all we care about, then why would we need to work to help or change our community when we can just look like we are and no one really knows the difference? We're all prone to it because we are all the celebrities at the center of our own universe, the ones staring back at us now from our profile pictures and posts, with labels and symbols attached to our names, some that help, some that hurt. After thinking this all through, all I've come up with is that I want to make sure that I pay attention to what Chelsea Weber Smith does, not just who I am. Stars, they're just like us. Stars, they are us. Maybe there is a way to remember that character matters too, that what we do matters in addition to who we are. Maybe that could actually help make America great without going back in time to the actual 1800s. This was American Hysteria. Just one more reminder and one more desperate plea for you to head over to our social media and let us know if you want our live show to come to your town. Next time on the show, 
we cover the phenomenon of local monsters and see how the different kinds of lore all around the country can be traced to real events or at least cultural anxieties. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by both Chelsea Weber Smith's personality and character. Assistant produced by Derek Smith, produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios, with research assisted by Riley Smith, and recorded on location in Seattle at Densmore Studios. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week carefully crafting your social media profile to best gain you the most social power. No, not you. Not you. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. Don't be rude. Quiet. Quiet. Don't. I'm not. Don't. Don't. You. You are fake news. Terrible.